You're listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. This is the sixth episode of our mini-series, Resilience in the Face of Adversity, where we ask how the coronavirus health crisis reveals insights about the values that bind us together. This episode features Jeff Cameron in conversation with Elizabeth May, Member of Parliament for Saanich Gulf Islands and Parliamentary Leader of the Green Party. They talk about how to do politics differently and consider whether the coronavirus could be a hinge moment in history for how we think about our relationship with the environment. I'm delighted to be joined in this episode of The Public Discourse by Elizabeth May, Member of Parliament for Saanich Gulf Islands and Green Party Parliamentary Leader. Elizabeth, for many of our listeners, you will not need any introduction, but for others, maybe you could just say a few words about your path to public service and the role that you play in Parliament. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Um, because I'm t- speaking to you from British Columbia, I want to acknowledge that I'm on the territory of Wissanik people. Mm-hmm. And Saanich, my writing, Saanich-Gulf Islands, is Saanich is an anglicized um, mispronunciation of the territory mm-hmm. of Wissanik people who are Sanchafan-speaking people and acknowledge uh, their territory with another um, sign of of deep gratitude and say Haishka Sam. I'm uh, my path to public service certainly wasn't a straight one um, in that I had no intention of quote unquote going into politics for most of my life. I didn't join a political party until I was 52. So most of my work in public service, and I think that has been my life's work, has been public service, but I started quite young as uh, in school working on environmental issues anyway I've had a lot of you know it's not direct line it's circuitous but wherever I was in whatever moment I found myself in I was doing environmental work Mm -hmm. so waitressing and cooking on a restaurant on the Cabot Trail in Cape Breton I saved my waitressing tips and used my unemployment insurance money every winter to fight the pulp companies so Mm -hmm. we wouldn't be sprayed with pesticides and that was an ongoing struggle that eventually got me into law school, that eventually got me a job working in government for the Minister of Environment, and I learned a lot there. And then the longest chunk of time was 17 years, 1989 till 2006, uh, as the first executive director of the Sierra Club of Canada, and so then politics. So the, the course to public service has been, in some ways, unerring and unrelenting, but the various costumes I put on in that pursuit have changed over the years. I was the first elected Green in any, well, I was the second elected Green in the world elected under a first-past-the-post system. That's how hard Mm. it is to get elected in a first-past-the-post system. Um, The first thing I did when um, Parliament sat for the first session in June uh, 2011, which was I'd been elected in May, I hosted a party for all newly elected MPs Hmm. as a come and break the ice, the non-party party. But we're working, I think, quite effectively because we are essentially non-partisan in our approach to politics. Hmm. And so we work across party lines in a way that's quite natural for us. And we're collaborating a lot with, um, well, with, with the liberals in minority, with the NDP in opposition, with the bloc, and where we can with the conservatives. Well, that, that's the thing I'd love to come back to a little later in our conversation. Um, but 
at the beginning, you know, one of the themes of this podcast uh, about the coronavirus is about the values that bind us together. You know, we're we're more conscious now of our interdependence in a way, um, and of the need to work together. And we're also, I'm sure, thinking about the kind of society we want to emerge from this crisis. So I'd like to ask you, what are the values that are getting you through this time, and where do those values come from? Well, and starting this conversation because uh, you and I first met through what I hope we'll be able to do in Parliament, which is recreating, putting back on its feet uh, a, a caucus for interreligious dialogue. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm very committed to um, being open about faith and open about my own personal spiritual path, which is that I'm an Anglican. And I'm also one of those Anglicans who's a questioning, doubting, probing, accepting of all faiths and non-faiths mm -hmm. kind of person. What informs me through this, of course, is remaining prayerful. I mean, there are so many people at risk. I've had very dear friends diagnosed with COVID-19 and mm. very, very sick and pulled through. Mm. I'm very, you know, so there's that element of we're in a time where uh, we are being gripped by death. You know, and at the same time, I find it an enormously hopeful, fruitful, fertile, interesting time. For the first time in my lifetime, governments around the world, without much prodding and pretty much simultaneously, without hesitation, decided to shut down their economies mm -hmm. because life is more important than money. Right around the world, governments are being guided by public science, public health advice that says to save lives and to avoid millions of people dying, we have to shut down our economies and we have to have people stay home. I mean, that's a profound statement of values, mm. public values, political values that uh, isn't, is, isn't in our, you know, we haven't seen anything like that probably ever. And I, I, I think that that's what makes it, you know, it, the, I mentioned the partisanship, we're, we're in parliament much more collaborative. We're working across party lines much more. So at a very personal mm. level, I feel very, very blessed. And at a, um, in, in a spiritual place, I'm thinking, does this change the values of our society permanently? Do we emerge from this with a very different sense of what really matters? Uh, can we be less of the mindlessly consumeristic society that wants to constantly buy more and more and more stuff and think we quote unquote need it? Could we be a more caring, compassionate society that it embraces these values for the long term? But it's, I think it, I think that um, for me personally, uh, I think there's a moment here for a reevaluation of what really matters. Well, just just maybe continuing on that that line of thinking, I wonder if you could talk more about how this crisis could allow us to reconsider our relationship with the environment. As you said, we're all, or many of us, are getting used to traveling much less, hopefully reducing our personal consumption, thinking in more collective terms, being maybe more attentive to. Our, our local economies. So I'm wondering, you know, do you think it's possible we'll come out of this crisis with 
a new perception or the, some new collective consciousness of our relationship with the natural world. The quote I wanted to find is this one. This is from, uh, I'm lucky to, to, to know her, Vandana Shiva from India. But mm -hmm. what she said, and it won't take me too long to read this, post-COVID-19, let us regenerate the economy with the consciousness that all lives are equal, that we are part of the earth, we are ecological, biological beings, working is our right and is at the heart of being human, and care for the earth and each other is the most important work. There are no disposable or useless people. We are one humanity on one planet, autonomy, meaning, dignity, work, freedom, democracy are our birthright. Mm. So that's the close quote. I don't know that we have for quite a long time, certainly in the era of neoliberalism, we've been discouraged from asking any big questions, like what's the meaning of life? Mm -hmm. What's my purpose here uh, in the world that I am a physical incarnate human being on the planet? What's the meaning of that? I, I think that something like a global pandemic that is killing hundreds of thousands of people and infecting millions and we don't know we don't know how this story ends uh, th this is not something that um several generations of humanity have experienced now it, it, particularly in wealthier industrialized countries where we've been rather absorbed by the notion of the economy being the be all and end all uh, so it, it could indeed be um a moment where we reassess our relationship with nature. It's been striking for people all around the world to suddenly see what their cities look like when, when not shrouded in pollution. Mm -hmm. For people in Northern India to see the Himalayas, for people in Paris to, to see their city. I mean, and it's striking for all of us. I mean, and they're, they're, the, the reappearance of fish in various places, the appearance of whales inside Vancouver Harbor in places that would usually be too busy with ship traffic to see, uh, to see a humpback whale. They, this is, there are extraordinary moments of mm. nature and, and wild animals, as we think of them, coming closer into our living spaces where we have pushed them out. But for us being here and being so busy and having so much traffic, it's clear the natural world would be back. Uh, it's it's also though a, a very worrying moment to realize that even with all of us staying home uh, for the most part and all of us not flying and you know, all of the cars in the garages so air pollution is way down but the international energy agency estimate for 2020 is that overall greenhouse gas emissions in 2020 will only be four to eight percent less than they were in 2019 well, I mean, it's certainly good to have a reduction, but it says quite a lot about the nature of the hardwiring of our economies around fossil fuels, that even with us in terms of our personal choices and lifestyles, which ha have been made such an obstacle to progress on climate, frankly, I think, you know, that the what are you willing to do question has been in the way of climate action for far too long. Mm. And this pandemic illustrates pretty clearly that even when humanity is staying home, and self-isolating, the impact compared to you know 2019 overall for the full year, the estimate is at most an eight percent reduction in greenhouse gases. That's that's kind of worrying. But I do hope that we can emerge saying um, 
this our sense of humanity's relationship with nature and our sense of our relationship to each other as members of the same human family has been shifted. Yeah, there's almost in that quote that you read by Vandana Shiva, there's a there's a kind of spiritual perception in there too that I mean it's this paradox, isn't it, that there's this biological entity that has raced around the globe uh, has done something to remind us of our the spiritual aspect of our reality. This very material thing actually helps us to think about the way in which the spiritual is quite important to our lives, not just individually, but also collectively. Well, it, it, it has, and I, I, would, I wish that there was more space in public discourse for the voice of faith leaders right now in terms of what are we facing, what are we seeing? I mean, we, we obviously, we, we can't congregate in our places of worship. It's not safe and it's not smart. Um, it, but we, we do have, uh, it's, it's interesting how many people have, in some ways, started going to church because the meetings are available on Zoom. Mm. Um, it, it's, uh, uh, and you can pick and choose what, what faith tradition you want to visit if you want to pick, you know, go, go to observe something. But for the most part, I mean, what I'm really lamenting is I, I, other than, other than um, Pope Francis, I haven't heard any voices of religious leaders that have, you know, pierced through all the noise of COVID to say to people, this is a moment for you to reflect on what matters to you. Yeah. I do think that in, that without, even without those voices, it's happening. That people isolating at home and spending time away from their normal day-to-day -day routines and facing something as large as um, a virus that's uh, in, an invisible parasite that's extraordinarily lethal, it has shifted to more time for reflecting matters. You know, just thinking about reflection and zooming out a bit to look at the broader picture. Um, this is something I've noticed in your own career in politics. I mean, you, you've been part of the Green Party, which um, fits within the democratic system of party politics. And yet, as you referred to earlier, you've often talked about doing politics differently and working across party lines. Um, you know, I think like most people, I've been really alarmed, especially before the pandemic hit, uh, of, you know, rising partisanship and polarization, the more performative aspects of politics. Um, but also, as you mentioned, there is a, a new sense of unity that can emerge from a crisis and a return sort of to the fundamentals of democracy, that is talking through different viewpoints and arriving at decisions in the best interests of the public. So I wondered, you know, coming out of this, where do you see the potential to do politics differently? In Canada, our executive and our legislative are the same. So it's really important for Canadians to understand our system of government more fundamentally than we do. And in this, I include uh, most of the major national media pundits. They cover Canadian politics as though it was a lot closer to US politics. Hmm. But our system of government, at least in theory, is that every member of parliament is equal and the prime minister is merely first among equals. And that, that appreciation of it says, well, once an election is over, we should stop thinking about partisan politics altogether. We should just be thinking of how do we work together? We're all elected to this place. We're in parliament to work together. And holding the government to account is 
clearly part of the job, but believe it or not, because it's been so long since people have even understood this basic reality, if you're a liberal backbencher, meaning you're not in cabinet, your job is to hold the government to account just as much as the Greens and the NDP and the Conservatives are supposed to hold the government to account. So mm -hmm. over time, the power of political parties has grown so much that most members of parliament don't even understand that the principles and the system and the theory of Canadian parliament is that other than the cabinet members, everybody in the room is supposed to be holding the government to account and working together. Mm -hmm. ah, we've, we've lost that quite a lot over the years, but I, I, I'm, I'm a stickler for tradition and I think it's really important to remember that we aren't the US and our system of, I really love the Westminster parliamentary system. And, and if we could just push backroom political operatives out of the way, uh, other than during elections, it would function a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. Well, we're coming towards the end of our, our time together. And I know you have other appointments to keep. <laughs> um, terrible? But I'm, you know, we end each of these episodes by asking our guests about their hopes for the future. And this has already been a theme that's run through our conversation. But maybe I can ask you in closing, uh, what your hopes are for the kind of change that might come out of this crisis, if it's, you know, an opportunity for a new beginning or to think about how we can build something anew afterwards. What are your hopes and aspirations? I'm really thinking very big about all this. Um, you know, the, the, the term of a hinge moment in history, there are not that many moments where things really shift. Hmm. This is not like the 2008 financial crisis where it's really bad, but then we're gonna have to spend stimulus money and everything will get back to normal. This is fundamentally different from that. And it opens up a conversation on a whole lot of issues. One really big picture issue, I mentioned neoliberalism briefly earlier, but the, the mantra of neoliberalism, which has really owned the public discourse since the late 80s, that government is best when it's small, that, that private sector does things better than government, that whole discourse around government and private sector has been turned on its head in pandemic because our heroes so everything about neoliberalism has been turned on its head and the public sphere is back. Can you put it back in a box again? Can you say, well, you know, uh, I mentioned earlier on the climate emergency, how much it's been a barrier that governments have been able to say, uh, uh, does the public look ready? Do we see a willingness to drive less? Do we see a willingness to, uh, you know, in COVID-19, nobody said, do we see a will? I don't see a willingness on the part of the Canadian public to stay home for weeks on end and wash their hands constantly. I don't think they're willing. You know, this was a this turned all of the assumptions about the only kind of change we can ever get is is incremental, hmm. because large scale shifts can't happen and governments don't move that fast. Well, that's all out the window. Hmm. So how do we unlearn what we just saw? I don't think we unlearn that. Hmm. Uh, that's an encouraging thing for me because if we're going to survive as a human society, as a functioning civilization on this planet, we have an, a really looming emergency of the climate emergency and we must deal with it and we will not deal with it through incrementalism or market forces. We need the same level of, we listen to the science now and the science told our policymakers, we have to tell everybody to stay six feet apart. You have to stay two meters apart. And as I said to one of my friends in the cabinet the other day, I said, you know, on climate science, 
you guys say, well, we can't give you everything you want, but we'll get, we'll do better. So that's like saying, we can't give you six feet apart. We'll let you stay three feet apart. Can't stay two meters apart. We'll let you have one meter apart because we have to compromise on these things. No, the climate science and the carbon budget isn't something we negotiate. We are literally running out of time to avoid the kind of runaway global warming that will preclude the survival of human civilization probably by the end of the century without real action. And, and I think it's, it's one that actually does challenge us as to what we are and who we are on this planet. What's, our, what's the point? What's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of existence? And wouldn't it be nice, I think, I think it would be interesting to say, wouldn't, isn't it worthwhile to say that taking a moment when we're no longer so busy that we don't notice anything because we just run around, have to get to work, have to get home, have to shop for the things we need to shop for, and we're running very, very hard just to stay in the same place. We've suddenly stopped and stayed in the same place too long. It, it gets people down. There's a lot of mental health issues going on that one shouldn't ignore. But it's the kind of moment I've, I was thinking from the beginning of this conversation for some reason about Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, mm -hmm. who's one of my favorite mm -hmm. um, theologians. Um, I'm sure you know the quote, we, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. It may be that COVID-19 is reminding us of that. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And what do we want to make of it? Well, that's as good a note as any to end on. So Elizabeth May, thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. I wish you a, a happy and healthy weekend, and I hope you have a few moments to enjoy some fresh air in between all of your Zoom calls. Take care. Okay, take care, Elizabeth. Bye-bye. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i Faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at opa.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.